If you have your Bible, open up to the book of Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We are coming back to a series that we've put on pause uh, for the last four weeks. We have been working our way through the book of Colossians verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter. Uh, and about a month ago, a little over a month ago, we left off on Colossians chapter 3 verse 4. And so today we're going to pick up at Colossians chapter 3 verse 5 and continue on uh, in our study of this book. I uh, remember vividly my very first fist fight. Do you remember yours? Maybe, no? Either you got knocked out really hard or you didn't have one. That's fine. I was, uh, I think, fourth or fifth grade. It was at summer camp at Lafayette Park, uh, where I went to summer camp every year as a kid. And we were playing wiffle ball. I think it was raining or something because we were playing wiffle ball, but we were playing inside. And if you don't know what wiffle ball is, wiffle ball is like baseball, but not real. And so wiffle ball, you have a plastic bat uh, and you have a, a plastic ball that has a bunch of holes in it that makes the ball fly all sorts of crazy directions. And that's the fun of it. Instead of being able to throw the ball hard, because you can't, um, you, you throw it crazy. And, and that's how you, you strike batters at. I was pitching uh, and another guy was batting. I don't know who the guy is. I don't know his name. Don't remember him. I just remember him being bigger than me. Um, and it was only like the second or third pitch of this game, and I throw the ball, and it does this weird, funky curving motion, and it hits him right here in the arm while he's batting. I didn't mean to hit the guy. I'm not that good that I could control where the ball was going in the first place. It just happened. I thought it was kind of funny, frankly, and so I started laughing. <laughs> and I kind of looked this way, laughed, you know, laughing or whatever. That was funny. Hit, And then I, I turned back, and he wasn't in the batter's box anymore. He was in my face. And the next thing I know, he's throwing a punch and he clocks me right in the side of the head. And, and a, a fist fight ensues. Um, I, I won't tell you who won because it's not relevant to this story. <laughs> Let's just say I, I was caught off guard a little bit, okay? And I, I'm convinced that's why I may not have won that fight because I didn't know I was in a fight until it was too late. I didn't know I was in a fight until he was on top of me and swinging away. And, and when you don't know you're in a fight, that's a really dangerous place to be because when you don't know you're in a fight, your guard's not up and you don't throw any punches. And we're going to look at a text of scripture this morning that is about a fight that all of us are in. And one of the big fears I have, one of the big dangers that we're all in is that we are in this fight, but we may not realize it. And when you don't know you're in a fight, you lose. And God desires for us to win the battle that is described here. And so the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is going to share with us what that fight looks like. And hopefully we can learn a little bit about how we can step up to the plate, so to speak, and, and battle appropriately. So Colossians chapter 3, we're going to read verses 5 through 11 this morning. The Apostle Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Verse 9, do not lie to one another seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. 
Here there, are, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the parts of your word that we love, that make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, that encourage us. Lord, we also thank you for the parts of your word that challenge us and correct us where we need to be challenged and corrected. And Father, we know that your word, when it goes forward, it does not return void. It accomplishes your purpose whenever it goes out. And so this morning, I pray that would be true once again. That those here today, myself very much included, would hear what you want them to hear from this text. Those who need to be lifted up would be lifted up, and those who need to be rebuked would be rebuked. And Father, for all of us, I pray that we would walk out of this place this morning glorifying you for who you are and what you've done on our behalf through Christ. And so would you speak to your servants, Lord? We are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This text is about sin, right? And we're, I'm going to define sin for us in a minute. But what the Apostle Paul does here, and again, setting this in the context of all of the book of Colossians, is he outlines for us some things that we've got to remove from our life, some things that should not be present in the lives of believers. And he, he lists them off. He, much of this passage here, this section, is actually just a list of things that we should stop doing as the people of God, as Christians. And he outlines some of the why behind why we ought to stop doing these things. And, and really what his heart is here is that we might be people who are in alignment. We're in alignment with who God has said we are, that we're in alignment with who we say we are. We're in alignment with our future. We're in alignment with God's desire for our lives. And he is telling us that when these things are present in your life, you are out of balance. You're out of whack. You're out of alignment. And so he says, hey, you've got to take these things off. You've got to remove these things from your life. And these things that we're talking about, while he doesn't use that word in this text, the Bible overwhelmingly, with a ton of clarity, calls these things sins. And so we're going to look at, I have two points this morning if you're a note taker, and the first point is this, is that we must see sin clearly. We must see sin clearly. Recognizing sin for what it is, is the first step to doing what Paul tells us here to do, which is to remove it from our lives. And that seems straightforward. And if you're a church person here, right, if you're a person who grew up in church, has been around church for a while, been and heard a bunch of these sermons, read a bunch of Bible, this is not a shock to you, right, that we should remove these things from our lives. But if you are new to faith or not a Christian or just checking out Christianity, this is oftentimes a major hang-up for people. This idea that we are doing something wrong, that the way I live is wrong, that the, the, the things I do, God is unhappy with me. That's to our modern sensibilities. This is a deeply offensive concept. But if we're going to live the way this passage tells us to live, we have got to see the things listed in this passage clearly. We've got to see them the way God sees them. And so what is sin? We can ask to begin. We can define sin simply as this. As sin is deliberately or accidentally breaking God's commands. Sin is deliberately or accidentally breaking God's command. You see, God has given us a way to live. 
God has outlined how we're supposed to behave, what we're supposed to do, what we're supposed to not do. And he's done it not just because he's some sycophant sitting in heaven wanting to make life hard. He's done it because he loves us and he wants what's best for us. And he, because he created us, he knows what's best for us. And he said, this is it. Here's the plan. Here's how you live. And next week's sermon, he's going to tell us the positive things that we're supposed to do. But in this portion of the text, part of that law is avoiding these things. The problem with seeing sin clearly in the world that we live in today is everything is set up to convince us that sin either doesn't exist or isn't a big deal. We live in a world that is designed to tell us that sin either doesn't exist or isn't a big deal. Our culture right now, the prevailing theology of our culture is that we ought to do what feels good. And if it feels good, it must be right. In years past, that hasn't always been the case in different cultures and different times. In this country, that certainly hasn't been the case for most of our history. But in the last 10, 15, maybe even 20 years, this prevailing theology has risen to become the dominant way of viewing these things today. That if it feels good, it is right. In the past, our standard of morality was external and it was objective. What I mean by that is it, it didn't come from within inside of us. It came from our society. It came from a natural law that people understood to be right and good. People who believe the Bible got their... Amen. I hadn't really gotten going yet, but okay, Lord. I don't know how to fix that, so we're just going to keep going. If we can. I don't know if I can keep going with that. There we go. Praise the Lord. <laughs> super fun. See, this is just driving my point home. Satan doesn't want you to hear about this. He doesn't want you to know that sin exists or is real. He wants us to gloss right over it, pretend it didn't happen. But it is real. And in years past, things outside of us told us what was right and wrong. The Bible told us what was right and wrong. Our culture had norms that were generally agreed upon that told us what was right and wrong. And it was, you could tell when someone was inbounds or out of bounds. It was just understood. It was objective and it was external. Today, the opposite has happened. Morality today is internal and subjective. Now, for most people, for most modern Western people, what determines if something is right or wrong is how they feel about it inside. How does it make me feel? Do I like it or not? Then it must be good or it isn't. And it's subjective. What's right and wrong for you may be different than what's right or wrong for your neighbor. And so there's no objective basis for morality. It's all subjective and it's all internal. And when morality and justice and righteousness is internal and subjective, it cannot be questioned. And we've experienced some of that. Perhaps you've run into some of that in your workplace or with friends and neighbors where you've tried to share your faith with and, 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 and you might challenge someone's morality on something. And they say, well, you can't question that. This is my truth, right? That's not how truth works, however. So we live in a world that doesn't want us to see sin as even existing. And if it does exist, it's not a big deal. Satan spends a huge amount of time, energy, and effort trying to convince you and I that sin is not a big deal. That it's not really going to hurt us. It's not really going to make a difference. It's not really that big of a deal. We could sweep it under the rug. We could move on. It doesn't matter. And so we live in a world where everything, our own hearts, Satan whispering in our ear, the culture we live in, perhaps our relationships are all telling us 
that these things that the Bible calls sin, we shouldn't worry about all that much. But if we're going to be people of the book, if we're going to be people who live in obedience to God's commands, if we're going to be people, honestly, who live the best life that we can live, and that's kind of a weird thing to say, and there's some churches that get in trouble for saying, you know, live your best life and that kind of stuff. But truly, God's desire is that we would live our best life, be the best version of ourselves, be the most happy and joyful people on earth. The way we do that is by living the way that God calls us to live, which means putting off sin and putting on good attributes. And so following Jesus requires us to see sin clearly. And this text says we must put sin to death, which is harsh, harsh language. This text says that on behalf of some of this sin, that the wrath of God is coming upon us. That is hard language to hear and understand. And so it forces us to question and to wonder what is sin, that it's such a big deal that the Bible will talk about it in these terms. What does sin do? First, sin destroys our relationship with God. Sin destroys our relationship with God. In the Bible, the Bible tells the story of not just the end of the story, but the beginning of our story. When God created mankind, he created us in his image, he says, and we had perfect relationship with God. The original way we were designed was to be friends of God, to walk with God, to talk with God face to face. But sin enters into the garden, and this is Genesis chapter 3, sin shows up. Satan tempts Eve and deceives her to disobey God's command. And in so doing, the face-to-face relationship she had with God was broken. Same was true for Adam as he sinned in the same way. So sin began by destroying man's relationship with God, and it continues to do that today. Sin is the barrier, the thing that keeps us from interacting with God. It destroys our relationship with God because his holiness requires he be separate from sin. He can't be in the presence of sin. And so when we are stained with sin, we can't be in the presence of our pure and holy God. Sin also destroys our relationships with others, doesn't it? Think about any relationship you have in your life that's strained or that is broken or that doesn't exist anymore that used to. And you can rewind the conversations back. You can replay the interactions you've had. And all of the relational strain in your life traces its roots back to what? To sin. Somebody's sin, either yours or theirs, or probably a combination of the two. Because sin by nature is putting ourselves first, putting us at the centerpiece, and that by nature destroys relationships. Good relationships put others first, and so sin destroys our relationships with others as well. We could spend an entire Sunday morning sermon talking about all the damaging and destructive effects of sins. This is just two of them. There are dozens more, but you get the point. Sin destroys. And as believers, we can't love God without hating what God hates. I resolved to not talk about college football much this morning. I'm going to fail on that. In my house, when Florida State is playing football, you can't come into my house and cheer for the Clemson Tigers. You can't. It's not allowed. You, you, amen. Thank you. Finally got one. You can't hate, you can't love what I hate and be in a close relationship with me, right? These are, we're enemies, and so you can't. Now, I'm going to tread lightly here. There are some gators in the room. There are a lot of gators in the room, and that's fine. Okay. Amen. That's fine. Fine with you choosing to root for your subpar football team. We are all brother. I can 
see, I'm going to get my whole sermon off track here. This is why I said not, I wasn't going to do it, and I did it, and I'm sorry, Lord, forgive me. You can't, I'm going to set it aside, you cannot, you cannot love God without hating what God hates. If we're going to see sin clearly, we've got to see it the way God sees it, and God sees it as incredibly dangerous, incredibly destructive. A lot of times we don't see it that way because, like I've said, we have a lot of forces fighting against us in that department. One of the ways we fail to see sin the way God sees sin is that we have a tendency to think that there's only a few big, major sins, and as long as we're not doing those, we're good, right? In the old days, it was sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and if you weren't participating in any of those three, you were good, right? Now we've decided rock and roll is fine, but we're still not okay with sex and drugs, but there's these big sins, right? If, I haven't, if I'm not, uh, you know, whatever, if I'm not a, a crack addict, then, then, I'm, then I'm good. Or if I'm, not, uh, if I'm not engulfed in a pornography addiction, then I'm good. But the Bible doesn't talk about sin that way. The Bible teaches us that all sin separates us from God. All sin destroys relationships. All sin keeps us from being in God's presence. And I think one of the things the church Not this church particularly, in fact, I think this church does a good job of this, but the church globally has made a mistake in is we have elevated some sins and says these are way worse than others. And then we've minimized other sins and says these are fine. We're okay with this. There's a lot of places who wouldn't accept or wouldn't receive or welcome in someone who struggles with big, obvious, glaring sins, but if they or gossip, that's fine. Maybe someone's sexuality is on display in a way that you think is, and the Bible says is, in contrary to his law, you say, no, that person's not welcome. But if you're someone with an anger problem, that's fine. He just flies off the handle a little bit every once in a while. The Bible doesn't talk about sin that way. The Bible says on behalf of these things, the wrath of God is coming. The Bible takes all sin seriously. And one of Satan's tactics, in addition to this, to minimizing sin, is desensitizing us to sin. And this is something, church, we've got to be afraid of, we've got to be vigilant for, we've got to be on guard against. Satan is actively trying to desensitize us to the seriousness of sin. He wants to lower the bar. He wants to lower the standard. He wants to chip away at what's acceptable. You can look at it in, in superficial ways, right? right? If, you, if you go back and uh, you can look at the way people dress now compared to the way people dressed 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago, right? Isn't the standard is lower. Now go back to what kind of talk is acceptable. What kind of words are acceptable for the people of God to use? The standard is lower, isn't it? What kind of entertainment Christians are allowed to watch and partake in and and indulge in? Stuff that would have gotten you kicked out of a church maybe 50 years ago is just a normal Tuesday night for Christians today. The standard is being chipped away at. And this is Satan's goal. This is Satan's desire so that we don't recognize sin as sin. So that we might take small steps towards sin instead of big leaps towards sin. You see, nobody ever wakes up in the morning and goes, I want to destroy all my friendships. But I'll tell you what does happen. Somebody hears a little gossip about a person in their friend group and they let it go. They just listen without saying anything. They don't participate. They're just listening. And they do that two or three times. 
and kind of realize this is kind of fun, kind of juicy. They're spilling the tea, if you will. And so the next time they show up to the gossip session with something they've heard about their friend, they participate just a little bit. They just kind of ease into it. Man, that gets a rise out of the group. The, the girls are happy to hear that. And so the next time they get together, she has a little bit more to offer, what she'd seen, what she'd heard. And slowly but surely over time, she takes a little further and further and further and further and step into sin. And the next thing you know, nobody loves her, nobody trusts her, nobody wants to be close to her because they're worried about what she'll say. She's hurt people with her words, and she's alone and going, what happened? Sin is a gradual step-by-step-by-step progression towards death and destruction. Nobody ever wakes up one day and says, I want to destroy my marriage. That hasn't happened. I don't think that ever happens. Nobody wakes up and says, I'm done with this. Out of no reason, out of the blue, I'm going to destroy it. But a lot of men do let their eyes linger too long on racy pictures on social media, don't they? And they do let their thoughts drift towards a coworker who comes across as nice and flirtatious to them. They do give that person more attention than they should and let them into their life more than they should. And the next thing you know, you're standing before a judge who's telling you, you can only see your kids every other weekend. How does that happen? Nobody wakes up one day and says, I'm gonna have an affair. It's small incremental steps towards destruction because Satan has said it's not that big a deal. It won't hurt you. It's, it's fine. It's just a little bit. And God wants us to recognize that it is a big deal. It will lead to destruction, and it is dangerous. And if we don't see it the way he sees it, we will fall prey to it. My grandfather is my hero. Um, he passed away nearly 20 years ago uh, now, if not 20 years ago already. Um, I grew up spending a lot of time with him. Uh, he, he was a plantation. I operated a dairy plantation um, for much of his life. He owned a, a bait and tackle shop out in the country and larger than life figure. And one of the things that I loved about my grandfather is his ability to see things that I couldn't see or that other people couldn't see. I remember one time we were uh, driving around the farm that he owned. Um, he's a big hunter, love hunting. And he, we pulled into a field and he said, you see those deer out there? Looked, looked through the windshield of the truck. I said, no, I don't. I don't see them out there. He goes, they're back there, back in the corner, right on the tree line. So I looked closer, right where he pointed. I don't see any deer. There's nothing there. And at this point, I'm, I've grown up a little bit. I'm a teenager, I think, at this time. And I think my, grandmother, my grandfather might be losing a little bit, right? So I was like, Grandpa, there's not any deer out there. And he said, do you want to bet? I said, I'm looking. I can see. He honks his horn on his truck and four deer scatter from this very spot that he saw. He was able to see things I couldn't see. Another time he saw something that I couldn't see. He had a pool in his backyard. My best memories are playing in the pool in his backyard, and he wanted me to go and flip off the pump. They had a little shed built around the pool, like this big or so, and he wanted me to go flip on or off the pump or something like that. And so I went, opened the door to the shed, and I went to reach to flip the, the switch, and he goes, you better watch that snake right there about this far from my finger, wrapped around the pipe, was a cottonmouth snake just looking at me. He saw it. I didn't. And I think if we do anything today from this text, if the Apostle Paul has anything to say to us, he wants us to see what we may be missing, that we are in imminent danger if we don't recognize what's going on and what's right in front of us. Sin destroys. It destroys us spiritually. It destroys us relationally. It destroys us physically. It destroys everything it touches. God hates sin because he loves 
us, and he hates what sin does to us. And so we've got to ask ourselves, how do I view sin? Do I think it's not a big deal, something I can just keep here on the side and just pretend like I'm good, but I'm just going to nurse this pet sin here quietly? Or are we going to see this as the greatest enemy of our life that we are in a battle with? Because sin is so dangerous and so destructive, we must fight sin. And that's our second point this morning, is that we must fight sin actively. The overarching command of this passage begins in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He goes on to say, to put it away in another another verse here in this passage. He says in another spot, he says to put it off. And so in three different ways in this passage, the Apostle Paul tells us, hey, you've got to get rid of it. Put to death, he says, is a violent description of how we're supposed to treat sin in our lives. The Puritan author and pastor John Owen, he is famous for saying, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Church, there is no neutral in our battle against sin. You can't just sit back and just let life happen. We have to be active in our battle against sin. No one ever drifts towards holiness. Nobody ever accidentally becomes godly. It takes intentionality. It takes purpose. It takes a plan. And it takes focus. And we must be active in our fight against sin. So how do we do that? How do we obey this command in verse 5 to put to death what's earthly in you? I have a few practical steps for killing sin. First is this. We've got to feed on God's word. If we're going to battle sin, we've got to feed on God's word. I have a friend in in undergrad who used to have a bumper sticker on his car, and it said, a chapter a day keeps the devil away. I don't think that's totally true. I've been reading the Bible for a while, and I haven't found that quite to be true, that the devil doesn't come knocking when I read my Bible. But what I have found to be true is that when the devil comes knocking, if I've read my Bible, I'm more equipped to fight. And so we've got to feed on God's word. Psalm 119.11 says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And so the psalmist says there's a direct correlation, there's a direct connection, and your ability to battle sin is correlated to your hiding of God's word in your heart. There's a war going on in each and every one of us, a war between our flesh, our earthly desires, this text says, and a war between our spirit. And who is going to win the war? The one that we feed. So we've got to feed our spirit. We've got to feast on God's word. We've got to read it. We've got to memorize it. We've got to discuss it. We've got to know it. We've got to understand it. We can't cherry pick it and just pick the passages that are fun and that we like. We've got to chew on texts like these today. So we might be equipped to battle the war that we're in. Second, I want to encourage you as you're battling sin to pray for the spirit's strength. Pray for the Spirit's strength. Sin is a spiritual battle, and so we've got to fight it with spiritual tools. And Jesus modeled for his disciples how to pray. You guys remember the Lord's Prayer? You might have learned this growing up. Jesus models for his disciples how to pray. And in that prayer, he lists off about eight things that he prays for that he said should be an example for you and how you pray. And of those eight things that Jesus lists that we ought to pray as Christians, four of them have to do with sin. Jesus is very concerned with sin in our prayers. He says, hallowed be your name. That's one, holy, right? Worship God. He says, your kingdom come, praying for God's kingdom to come. That should be number two, right? Your will be done. Uh, That's number three, on earth as it is in heaven, right? He asks for provision. Give us this day our daily bread. Number four, what does he say? Forgive us our 
trespasses, which is another Bible word for sins. Then what does he say after that? Help us to forgive those who trespass against us. Help me forgive those who sin against me. Then he says, keep us from temptation. That's number four in this category. And finally, deliver us from Satan's schemes, which are certainly to get us to fall into sin. He says, when you pray, spend half your time battling sin in prayer. Half the topics of prayer ought to be about sin. And I wonder how often we go to the Lord and beg God for help in this area. We just try to fight it on our own. How's that going for you? We need spiritual tools to fight the spiritual battle. And so beg God through prayer for the Spirit's help in fighting sin. Number three, the third way, that practical way that you can battle sin in your life is you can avoid the opportunity to sin. You can avoid the opportunity to sin. The Bible says if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Why? Because it's better to enter into heaven without a right hand than it is to let it destroy you. It requires us to think a little bit about where am I tempted to sin? Where do I struggle? Is it a person? Is it a relationship that leads me down a path I shouldn't go? Is there a place that I go that I know I shouldn't? I must avoid that place. Does your phone cause you to sin? Maybe with what you look at on it? Throw it in the trash. They make dumb phones now. These are supposed to be smartphones. They make dumb phones now. You can just get an old-fashioned flip phone, right? The only, you can go, go get one of those old Nokias where the only vice on there is, is snake and getting caught up playing in the snake game. <laughs> Throw your phone away if it's causing you to sin. Does watching HGTV cause you to covet? Uh-oh. You ladies didn't think I was coming for you, did you? <laughs> Cut the cable. Get rid of Hulu. Whatever you got to do so you're not tempted to go there again. An acronym I, I heard one time, and you've probably heard it too, it's really helpful to be mindful of places where we may struggle with sin, is HALT, H-A-L-T. HALT, have you heard this? If you are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you should be on guard for temptation. If you're hungry, both physically hungry, like I need lunch, or if you have uh, sexual desire and appetite, any kind of bodily hunger should be a red flag for you. Hey, I need to be on guard here. If you're angry, the Bible says specifically, in your anger, do not sin. Why does it say that? Because it knows that we're prone to sin in our anger. Do you find yourself angry at life? Angry at your circumstances? Angry at a person? Angry at, I don't know, your lot in life, how things have gone for you? It's a temptation to sin that follows on, that, on their heels. Do you find yourself lonely? In our loneliness, we're so prone to sin. We're so prone to find fulfillment and satisfaction and acceptance and love when we don't have it in a physical person nearby, and so we go looking for it in sinful ways. We should be on guard when we are lonely. Are you tired? Not getting enough sleep, or maybe you're just worn out by circumstances and situations. You should be on guard. We've got to look for those opportunities and then stay away from it. Battle sin actively. Two more things on this, how to battle sin. Next, I want to encourage you to fight sin with someone else. Fight sin with someone else. Don't do it alone. In every murder movie you've ever watched, they always get someone else to help them bury the body, don't they? Right? Some wisdom there. We've got to bury sin in our lives. You're going to need someone else's help to do it. You gotta find someone else. Sin grows best in the dark. And when we don't shine a light on it, when we don't let someone else into it, that is Satan's playground. He loves it. 
Satan's going to tell you, hey, if people knew, they would never love you. If people knew, they'll never think of you the same way. If people knew, they, they, they wouldn't believe it. They'd shun you. What Satan doesn't tell you is that everyone you've ever met struggles with sin. Everyone you've ever met has secrets they don't want exposed. And every Christian you've ever met wants to fight sin and will do it with you and will battle it with you. So I want to encourage you, find someone that you trust, tell them what's going on, and ask for their help. Ask them to help you fight. Give them permission to ask you hard questions. Ask them to pray for you. Ask them to encourage you, but get someone else involved in the battle. If you don't know who that person is, come see me, and we'll help you find somebody. But I want to encourage you, shine a light on it, because sin grows best in the dark. You need someone else's help. Lastly, I want to encourage you to get back up. One of Satan's great tactics and strategies and burying us in sin is that he convinces us that when we fall down, he says, you're already down there. You might as well just stay down there for a little while. Have you ever experienced that? You fall off the wagon in some way, shape, or form. You, you fail in some way, and maybe it's the 10th or the 100th or the 1,000th time you failed in that area. And so you hear Satan say to you, just, just play down there for a little while. Satan would love nothing more than to tell you it's not worth getting back up. Satan's job, his goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. And if he can get you down, he's going to keep kicking you while you're down. So I want to encourage you to get back up. Return to the Lord. Go pray. We, uh, there's something in us that doesn't want to go to God when we've sinned. And that, that's that se sin separation thing that, that, that's natural to us. But I want to encourage you to fight through that. Go. Ask the Lord for, to, for forgiveness. And the Bible promises that if we ask God for forgiveness... It says he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so the only way to get out of the muck and the mud of sin is to go to the Lord. And so I want to encourage you when you do fail and you will fail, but I want to encourage you to get back up. The beauty of our fight against sin, this is hard, hard stuff, this is hard work, right? But the beauty of our fight against sin is that while we must fight the battle and you and I must fight the battle, against sin. Jesus has already won the war. We fight as people who are victorious. This passage begins in verse 5 with the word, therefore, when you read the Bible, you should always ask, what is it therefore, right? And it's therefore because verses 1 through 4 exist. I'll skip to verse 2. He says, set your minds on things that are above, not the things that are on earth, for you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. Church, if you're here today and you've put your faith in Jesus for salvation, you will appear with him in glory. You will be set free from the body of sin and death that we wear. You will be set free from the struggle of sin that consumes you. We are no longer earthly people, this passage says. We are heavenly people, and we're heavenly people because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. We read in chapter 2 of Colossians a few weeks ago. It says, and you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. What does it say? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. All of them. How? By canceling the record of debt or sin that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside and he nailed it to the cross. Church, we were dead in our sin, but God took our sin and placed it on Jesus' shoulders, and then he hung Jesus on a cross in our place. 
And as we give Jesus our sin, another exchange happens. We talked about this just the other day. God places Jesus' righteousness on us. And so now when God looks at you and when he looks at me as believers, he doesn't see our sin and failures and shortcomings. He sees the righteousness of Jesus. We have a new identity. That's why it says in verse 11 of our passage today that there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. Why? Because in Christ we have a new identity. All of these old identity markers, they don't matter anymore. What's most important is that we belong to Jesus. Because Jesus has defeated sin on the cross, you and I can be free from sin. So you're fighting a battle that has already been won. Victory is certain. We just haven't fully realized it yet. That should spur us on. That should encourage us to get up and fight another day, to battle sin, to put it to death. Because of what Jesus has done on the cross. Not so that we can earn our salvation. Our battle against sin doesn't earn us anything. It helps us take hold of what has already been earned for us. So as we close, I have a question for you. There are at least three types of people here this morning who have heard this message. And how you've heard this message is going to kind of tell you a little bit about who you are. The first type of person hasn't yet accepted Jesus' payment for their sins. There are people in this room who have not put their faith in Jesus' work on the cross to cover their sins, to take away the guilt and shame that come from their sins, to pay the price and penalty for their sins. And they are still wearing, you are still wearing your sins on your shoulders. And this person says, whether out loud or by implication, that I'm going to pay the price for my sins. Friend, the passage we read this morning says that on account of these sins, the wrath of God is coming. And I would be failing in my duty as a preacher of God's word if I didn't tell you that you should be very afraid of the wrath of God. God hates sin and he punishes sin with an eternal punishment and you are not strong enough to bear it. You are not good enough to pay the price for it. But Jesus is, and Jesus did. And the Bible says to be set free from your sin. All that is required is that you turn from your life of sin and put your faith in Jesus' work on the cross. And so your prayer, your response this morning is this, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I turn from those sins and I receive your sacrifice as payment for them. Help me to walk with you. That's the prayer. Something like that doesn't have to be perfect, doesn't have to be the right language. It's just a heart posture that says, Lord, I'm turning from my way of doing things, and I'm going to let you pay the price for your sin. If that's you here today, you can pray that prayer right now in your heart. And the Bible says you will be saved. That's your response today. Second type of person that may be here this morning hearing this message is the person who thinks this message is for someone else. There are some of us, perhaps in this room, who think they've already conquered sin. This person says, this message is for those other people because I'm good. Word for you this morning from the scripture is that be careful that you stand lest you fall. The Bible is clear that we shouldn't be as much concerned about other people's sin as we are about our own sin. And so I would encourage you to take the log out of your own eye before worrying about everyone else. Our text this morning says sanctification is a process says we are being renewed. We're not there yet. You haven't arrived either. 
And so your prayer this morning from Scripture comes from Psalm 139, verse 23. It says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me if there's any grievous or offensive way in me, another translation says, and lead me in the way everlasting. Your task is to ask God to reveal the sins of your heart so that you can get to work battling them this week as well. Finally, there's a third person here this morning who is hearing a message like this on sin and our battle with sin and our struggle with sin, and they're going, I'm trying to fight, but I'm losing. You ever been there? I'm trying, Lord, but I'm failing. I'm doing my best to rid this out of my life, and I can't seem to do it. And there's a temptation that exists. Even when you hear a message like this, even with the good news of Jesus and what he's done for you on the cross, there's still a temptation that Satan loves to poke at for you to go, I'm just going to give up. I've tried, I haven't achieved it. I've, I've battled and I've lost, and so I'm going to give up. God has a word for you this morning as well. I want to tell you that God is honored in your struggle with sin. God is honored in your struggle with sin because you struggling with sin, it communicates something. It communicates to God that you love him and you hate what he hates. It communicates to God that you love him enough to obey him. It communicates to God that you trust him enough to pursue his vision for your life. It communicates to God that you believe him. Struggling with sin is evidence of life in Christ because dead people don't struggle, do they? The Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't battle anything. People who are alive, though, they struggle with sin. And so if you are struggling today, let me encourage you, keep going. It's worth it. Satan wants you to give up. Do not give up. Do not let him win. Church, let's be a people that do not let him take our people. Dead people don't struggle with sin. They let them carry it wherever it wants, like a stream, like a dead fish that just flows to its destruction. People who are alive in Christ, they swim upstream. And it's hard. It's not easy. The Bible makes no bones about this being easy, but it's worth it. Why? Because in the end, we get Jesus. We get Jesus. We get life with him. We know the end of the story. You can flip to the back of your Bible. Revelation chapter 21 says that when Jesus returns and he establishes the new heaven and the new earth and he makes all things right and sin is removed from this world once and for all, Satan is defeated once and for all. When that happens, no pain, no suffering, no sin, no cancer, no death, no relational strife, it disappears. And we get life with God again. This is our hope. So we're going to close by worshiping God, which is the only proper response to the good news of what Jesus has done. We're going to close by singing, celebrating who God is and what he's done. Wherever you are this morning, whoever you are this morning, I want you to respond accordingly. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus, now's the time. Respond in faith. Whatever prayer you can come up with, it doesn't have to be perfect, but just tell Jesus you believe and you want to follow him. If you're here self-righteous thinking you've battled sin, it's time to humble ourselves. We're going to do it at this time. And if you're here and you're beat up because you've been trying but failing, it's time to worship the God who succeeds on your behalf. So I'm going to close this in prayer. We're going to spend some time in worship, and then we're going to go from this place 
to fight a battle with clear eyes, knowing that it's already won on our behalf. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for sending us the solution to sin. Thank you for saving us from our sin. Thank you for doing what we cannot and could not do for ourselves. We thank you for your perfect, sinless sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you that he came, lived the life that we are trying to live but failing to do. And we thank you that in his kindness and mercy towards us, he went to the cross willingly in our place, taking the punishment that we deserve. We thank you for the righteousness that we are clothed with because of what he did for us. And so, Lord, would you help us to walk in that? Would you help us to live out this new identity that you've given us? Would you help us to be people battling sin, not to earn your love, but because we already have it? And as we live lives of holiness and as we grow in holiness and we become more like you and know you more, Lord, would you increase our joy as we're thrilled to know that you have paid the price for our sins and we don't bear it anymore. And so as we sing now, God, would you help us to sing with joy? because of what you've done for us on the cross. And then would you send us from this place with joy, knowing that we are safe and secure in you. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.